Good morning, Grace. So good to be here. Um, I've just been thinking about this all morning, but uh, my wife, Raylin, who's on the front row, and, and myself, we are Fullerton people. We live just over here on Fullerton and up the way behind the high school. Some of you are our neighbors. Um, we love this community, and we love Fullerton. We love investing here, going and being a part of you know, the things that are happening in this downtown area, going to Burger Parlor and Night Owl and the whole uh, thing. We, we really enjoy this community. So any chance that we have an where we have an opportunity to come over here, uh, fellowship with you all, we just counted a profound privilege and blessing. On top of that, some of you are dear friends, um, and you are, um, by the providence of God, my brothers and sisters in this particular local congregation, and I'm so grateful for that. And so with that said, it's a privilege and a blessing, and I count it as joy to be able to stand before you and herald the word here this morning. May Christ be exalted this morning, and may we see his glory shine brightly. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our study of the book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark 14. And I'm really excited that we are in this particular passage um, because we get to encounter a character in the scriptures that is so beloved by so many. Yet, it's a heart-wrenching passage because this beloved character, Peter, he fails terribly. We often are people who relate to Peter in pretty significant ways, and here we're going to see him drop the ball in such a huge and catastrophic way that it can tend to be pretty heavy. Um, nevertheless, this is a gospel-infused sort of passage. In the midst of Peter's profound failure, we are going to see Christ exalted, and in keeping with that, we're going to be able to, I think, uh, trust Christ and put our confidence more in him as a result of the Christ that is revealed to us here in the scriptures. And so, uh, very excited. In a lot of ways, this is really part two of last week's sermon. So Ralph, last week, uh, brought us to Jesus before the council. And so we, we saw how Jesus went before and he uh, endured this mockery of a trial. So, now we're kind of seeing the conclusion of that in some ways. So basically I share that because there's going to be a lot of similar themes that are going to come up uh, today that are going to be from last week. And so you might hear some similar things. And I want to say that's a good thing. That's, that's great. Um, that happens in Scripture often. We are people like Come Thou Fount said that are prone to wander. We're quick to drift. And so God in his graciousness continually puts before us beautiful gospel truths and beautiful promises that we might continually fix our eyes on Christ and worship him and live in light of who he is and what he's done on our behalf. And so uh, to get into what we're going to be talking about today, I have two points uh, and full disclosure, these points, I've just basically taken lines and quotes from other people who are more clever than me and know how to spin out a phrase better than me. And so I'm just going to take what they say because I think it really captures the heart of what uh, we're seeing here in Mark 14. First, uh, this comes from Alistair Begg, very clever, very smart man. The best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. And so the idea here is, is that Peter is a great man. He is an excellent man. He's an exemplary man. Nevertheless, he is a man. And so his best of efforts will always fall short. The best of men are men at best. And second, Jesus, 
No mere man succeeds in every way that we fail. This is a line from Trip Lee. Jesus succeeds in every way that we fail. Jesus is our hope. Not Peter, not us, not our well-intentioned efforts. Jesus is our hope. And so as we study this passage this morning, we're going to see Christ exalted as the hero, as the central point of what we're looking at. So if you would, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark 14, and we will dive into this. Mark 14. I hear literally no turning of pages, which makes me think that you're already there. So... Once again, first point, the best of men are men at best. We'll see this in verses 66 through 72. So let's read together. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with that Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. So in these verses, we are seeing the incredibly sad and terrible fall of Peter, the rock. Mere hours after Peter boldly proclaimed that he would never fall away from Christ, he is left in utter shame at his rejection of Christ. And this point, I think, is is made even more poignant by the fact that this is really Peter telling this story himself. It's widely held that Mark's gospel, the primary source material for this gospel, is Peter himself. And so in Mark 14, what we see is, is Peter saying, this is what happened. This is what I did. See this. Be instructed by this. See how great Christ is as a result. Peter is telling us what, ha- what actually happened. And so as we see the terrible nature of this and the poignant nature of this, I think it would be wise for us to just work our way through this passage and see the content here, see what's actually being put forward, but also to feel what's happening in this passage and feel the rejection of Christ. As I alluded to a moment ago, the whole story actually begins hours earlier when Jesus tells his disciples that he will be struck and the disciples will scatter. They will be gone. But Peter, good old faithful Peter, says, no, absolutely not. No matter what happens, Jesus, I will stick with you. Even if I have to die, no matter what these other guys do, I will be with you. Peter, or Jesus responds to Peter's bold claim, though, by saying no. Indeed, Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Uh, The Gospel of Luke actually tells us when speaking of this story that Satan came to presumably God the Father, kind of like how he did with Job, and demanded that he have Peter. That he might be sifted like wheat, that he might be graded and discarded and destroyed. But Luke tells us that Jesus prayed that Peter would have faith. 
And that after he fell, that he would be restored and he would strengthen the brothers. And so this leads us to Mark 14, 53 and 54, which is a passage we hit on last week. And, and as Jesus is brought into the courtyard to go before the high priest, Peter follows behind at a safe distance. And so it's like he's following behind, looking behind rocks and hiding behind trees. And he ultimately makes, himself, makes his way into the courtyard where Jesus was brought. And he finds himself around a fire and he stands with some bystanders and he heats himself at this fire. And so this leads us to the passage that we're looking at today. And in this, uh, this scenario, a young servant girl comes to Peter and she accuses him of being with that Nazarene Jesus. Let us recognize here that she's not just simply describing who Jesus is. Oh, you were with that, Naz- that fellow from Nazareth, right? And that's not what's happening here. To refer to somebody as a Nazarene is actually a slur. So she's saying something like, you were with that piece of filth, Jesus, right? This isn't sort of a casual question she's being asked. She's making an accusation towards Peter. And so how does Peter respond? He says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I neither know nor understand what you mean. It's an interesting phrase. Every once in a while, my dear wife, Raylin, she will ask me to do something and I will forget. Uh, This often happens with our cats. She'll ask me to feed our cats. We have two cats that we love dearly. And she will say, hey, I'm going to get home a little late. Would you mind feeding the cats? And I will say, absolutely. I will totally feed the cats. However, later in the evening when we're sitting around and we're kind of debriefing our day talking, she'll say, oh, did you feed the cats? And my brain will grind to a halt. And I will realize that I did not, in fact, feed the cats. And so what's kind of happened in our marriage is whenever I do something like this, I always respond by going, what? And it's, and it's kind of become cl- like a clue that I dropped the ball here. I'm sorry. I'll go feed the cats right now. Um, that's not what's happening in this passage. Peter isn't looking at this girl and going, what? No way. I don't, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. That's not what's happening. Rather, when we see these two words composed together like this, to know, I neither know nor understand, Peter is emphatically denying any sort of association with, association with Jesus. So what he's saying is, is, no, absolutely not. I have no idea who this man is. I am not with him. It's not a simple, casual sort of, no, I'm not sure who that, who that guy is. He is emphatically denying any association with Jesus at all. Mark speaks true when he tells us that the disciples are people who are slow to know and comprehend. And so at this point, after this first denial, Peter moves towards the gateway. He's really moving towards the exit of the courtyard. Really, what's happening is he's trying to get to a safer place that if push comes to shove, he can flee. That he can get away. It's a safer place. And I think this makes sense, honestly. Uh, You know, he just denied Christ, and this is sort of a scary situation. People tend to think or seem to think that he's with Christ. And so why don't I just go over here to a safer place? Yeah, you got to imagine that he's probably holding on to the confession that he made just a few hours earlier, that he would never leave Jesus. Otherwise, he'd probably flee right then. But no, he's holding on a little bit, so he's going to stay here in a safer place. And so uh, our passage tells us that once again, this young servant girl comes to him and she says to some bystanders, this fellow is one of them. 
And once again, we don't get a whole lot of information, but Peter shrinks back from this servant girl. Peter still can't muster the courage to say, yes, I am with Christ. And so for a second time, Peter denies Jesus. Well, a little bit of time goes by. And once again, the bystanders come to Peter and they accuse him of being a disciple because he is a Galilean. He's a Galilean. Matthew's gospel tells us that his distinct speech gives him away as being from Galilee. Apparently, those from Galilee had a particular type of accent. It'd be like a British person coming in and beginning to talk. We would say, I know something is different. You're not from around here. There's a dialect there. And so uh, according to Matthew's gospel, Peter at this point has defended himself so rigorously that... uh, that he has given away what he sounds like and that he's not from around here. My, my dad, when I was younger, used to say that it's better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. There's a similar sort of thing that, uh, happening here. I think Peter would have been wise to heed my father's advice, but he doesn't. He gives himself away that he's not from around here. And it's, it's got to be an interesting sight. So Peter is from Galilee. So he's probably dressed different than everybody else. He speaks differently than everybody else. And it's in the middle of the night in the high priest's courtyard. Peter is going to stick out like a sore thumb here. He's the only person who doesn't belong. This isn't a random place that you go and hang out in the middle of the night. And so everybody has to be looking at Peter thinking, why are you here? You're not one of us. I think you actually are with Jesus. Nevertheless, Peter continually denies Christ. And so in verse 71, we see this denial actually take place. And and Peter in verse 71 actually invokes a curse upon himself and swears this time that he doesn't know the one of whom they speak. Now, commentators are a bit torn on what Peter's actually saying here. Some will say that Peter is calling down a curse upon himself and those around him if he knows Christ. But others will say that Peter's actually calling down a curse upon Christ himself. And I'm inclined to believe that that's actually the case, that Peter's calling down a curse upon Christ. And so we might be a bit confused by the wording here, but to call down a curse like this is essentially saying to hell with that man. I do not belong to him. And if Peter's talking about himself, then he's saying something like, to hell with me and to hell with you all if I know that man. You see the the weight of this? The, The stakes have been raised here. Peter, the rock, The one who confessed Jesus as the Christ in Mark 8 is here referring to his Lord and master as this man, as if Jesus is a mere man. Peter crumbles beneath the pressure of a servant girl and some bystanders. And so at this point, the rooster crows and Peter remembered Jesus' words that he would deny him, and immediately he breaks down. The wording is a little bit uh, strange here, but the idea is, is that Peter is beside himself with grief and shame, and he breaks down. We need to feel the enormity of Peter's sin. Three times Peter failed to understand Jesus' announcement of his death. Three times Peter failed Christ in the garden. Now three times Peter has denied Christ. His failures and his sin is just 
uh, culminated and culminated or uh, uh, built and built until where it culminates here in his denial of Christ in the courtyard. And I think the temptation here for us would be to look at Peter and to see this terrible sin and say, bad Peter, I can't believe you would do something so heinous and terrible as deny Christ. But what we have to recognize here is that Peter is not simply failing, but he is acting as our representative. This is not a random historical tidbit that Mark is letting us in on to just tell us what all happened as Jesus went to the cross. No, it's Mark telling us what we are like. And so in this story, we see Peter holding up a mirror saying, here is what you truly look like. We collectively are implicated in this sin. We collectively have fallen short of the glory of God. We collectively have despised and rejected our Lord Jesus. Over the past several weeks, as I've been thinking about these verses, I've been considering what does my own rejection of Christ look like? I've never had a gun held to my head or a sword held to my throat and said, confess Christ and die. Uh, Although there are people in our world and that is something they deal with, that's not what I've had to deal with. And, And this reminds me that I should be like Christ and pray for these people that they might have faith to endure and persevere in these unique challenging times. But once again, that's not what I've had to deal with. My sort of rejection has looked a lot more normal. Once again, uh, my wife and I were Fullerton people. And so we tend to walk around this community a lot. And, and it's so incredible how many times I have been so aware of this community's need for the gospel, need to know and comprehend the deep, deep love of Jesus and how often the Lord has made a way for me to share Christ with either my actions or my attitudes or my words and how often I have shrunk back. I've been at Night Owl and I've shrunk back. I've been at Burger Parlor and I've shrunk back. I've been at Lair Cake and I've shrunk back. I'm a person who has denied Christ. I think about my family and how often I've shrunk back from having hard conversations or reflecting Christ. I think about how often I have shrunk back from calling egregious sin, sin, because I'm afraid that it will label me as a religious fanatic or a fundamentalist. I've laughed at inappropriate jokes. I've changed my vocabulary. And in all of this, I have denied my Lord. And we have to recognize here is Mark is telling us that this is what we all do. This is not a Peter problem. This isn't just a me problem. This is a grace EV free problem. We are a people who have collectively denied our Lord. We are implicated in this terrible sin. You know, we might be quick to beat up on Peter here, but he really represents the best of us. Think about the other disciples at this point in time. Where are they? They're gone. They're scattered. They're not in view here. Peter at least had the courage to follow behind at a safe distance and actually get in the courtyard that he would be confronted with this and actually have the chance to deny Christ. If we were talking about me, I wouldn't be in the same city. Here, Peter is is acting as our best representative, but he is acting as our representative. We are implicated. And this is really bad news. For in Mark 8, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. 
Shame will be paid back with shame. At the end of the day, what we're seeing in these verses is that the best of men are men at best. We are a people who are fallen, who sin, who despise and reject our Lord Jesus. We are not the hero of this story. Peter is not the hero of this story, but there is a hero. These verses are pointing us to Christ, the one who, though he was despised and rejected, stood on our behalf. And so this leads to our second point today. Jesus, not me, not Peter, not any of us, Jesus succeeds in every way that we fail. Jesus succeeds in every way that we fail. The structure of Mark 14 is a type of structure that provides some incredible insight and clarity to what's actually being communicated to us here in our passage. You see, if we were to read this passage in a vacuum, if we only read verses 66 through 72, uh, we could get some good truth, but we would be left um, really wanting in discovering what I think Mark is truly wanting to communicate. What we have here is what's called a Mark and Sandwich. This has come up all throughout the book of Mark. We don't have to go into all the details of what exactly that means, but the point is, is that the structure of Mark 14, specifically verses 66 through 72, they, they point us to the fact that this needs to be read in light of what came before it. So immediately preceding this story of, G, of Peter before the, uh, in the courtyard before these people and denying Christ comes the story of Jesus before the council. And so the structure is telling us, it's indicating to us that these two stories are happening simultaneously to one another. They're concurrent stories. They're not chronological stories. So while Jesus is before the council, Peter is in the courtyard. And so as we consider this, we have to recognize that these two people, Jesus and Peter, are being held up that we might compare and contrast how they acted and how they worked, worked things out in their different uh, situations. And so I want to take a moment and consider Jesus and then consider Peter and compare and contrast a bit. So let's consider first the accusations that are levied against Peter and Jesus in these two scenarios. First, Peter endures true accusations. He endures true accusations. The slave woman comes to Peter and she accuses him of belonging to Jesus' disciples. And this is an absolutely true claim. It's true. He's dead to rights. Absolutely true. Nevertheless, Peter categorically denies. No way, no how. Jesus, on the other hand, endures a mountain of false accusations. False witnesses come forward. Other witnesses provide conflicting reports. All of them were false. Peter endured true accusations. Jesus endured false accusations. Let's consider who levied the accusations against Peter and Jesus. Peter was accused by a lowly slave woman, a person whose opinion carried absolutely no weight, not in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of people, of public opinion. She had no authority. What she said, what she thought didn't matter at the end of the, at the, end of the day. Nevertheless, Peter wilted before her. I can't help but consider how many times I have shrunk back from declaring Christ with my actions or my words in front of people that, whose opinion literally does not matter at all. It has no bearing upon my life. I'm never going to see this person again, and yet I shrink back because of my fear of man. 
That's sort of like what's happening here with Peter. He's shrinking back from somebody whose opinion carries no weight. Jesus, on the other hand, was before the high priest, the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. Jesus was dealing with people who possess real and true authority. And unlike Peter, he stood strong. Let's consider Jesus and Peter's response to these various accusations. Peter, when confronted, confronted with true accusations from the slave woman, loses it and becomes a babbling idiot. No way. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Uh, to hell with you. To hell with me. To hell with Christ. No, no, no. It wasn't me. He starts spouting off these crazy sorts of things. Have you guys ever confronted with somebody with something and you know that they did it and they don't want you to, to know, they won't admit it, and they just kind of lose it, and they start trying to grab onto anything in order to prove their point. I think we see something similar happening here with Peter. He is losing it, and he becomes a babbling idiot. Jesus, on the other hand, stood and maintained perfect resolve and composure. When the high priest asked Jesus what his answer was to the various false accusations, Jesus stood and he remained silent. Last, consider Peter and Jesus' denials and affirmations. Peter, when pressed to confirm or deny if he was in fact a disciple of Jesus, he shrank back. He denied. He said no. He went out of his way to definitively break relationship with Christ. Jesus, on the other hand, responds to the high priest when he asks if he is the Christ. Jesus responds with this confession, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Do you see the difference between Peter and Jesus? Jesus stands and succeeds where, Jesus, or where Peter fails. I think the story of Peter's denial really serves as an illustration for us here in the book of Mark. It shows us by contrast what Jesus is not like. Jesus before the council stands and he succeeds in every single way. He shows perfect resolve. He continually makes his way, sets his face on the cross and makes sure that he gets there. Peter, on the other hand, utterly fails. And in doing so, he shows us what Jesus is not like. Many of you know uh, that my wife, Ray Lynn, is pregnant. Uh, if you don't know, she's pregnant. <laughs> uh, and she's going to be uh, due in about 29 days, which is crazy. So Lord willing, uh, we will enter into parenthood for the very first time here in a very short amount of time. And we are feeling all sorts of emotions, excitement, uh, nervous, anxiety, the gamut, our, our emotions are running them right now. But we are recognizing this as a blessing from the Lord. Well, as we are getting closer and closer to this day where we enter into parenthood, we're starting to receive all sorts of parenting advice. And, um, and what I've begun to realize is it's not so much directed at Ray Lynn. She, I think people feel pretty confident that she's going to be an excellent mother. And I agree, she's going to do a great job. She is an excellent wife. She is great with kids. She will do wonderfully. Me, on the other hand, people seem to be pretty concerned about. <laughs> and so, so people are offering lots of advice, uh, lots of good, helpful words. Some of it not so helpful. Nevertheless, I'm grateful for it. Well, Teresa Valles is a member of Grace. She goes to our La Mirada campus. 
And she recently shared on my Facebook wall some, some tidbits on the do's and don'ts of parenting a newborn baby. So I want to share these with you, uh, and we'll kind of learn a few things maybe. So fun games for the baby. Good is things like peekaboo. Bad is playing chess together, which is a real bummer because I love chess. Feeding baby, you do it with a bottle. You don't do it with a chicken leg in their face. So that's not the right way. Lifting baby, I've learned that it's important to support the neck. So you want to support the neck. You don't want to grab from the top of the head and lift them up. Bonding with your baby. Babies can only see a little bit in front of you, so it's important to get FaceTime with your babies rather than uh, sharing a cup of coffee and some gossip with them. Uh, You clear the baby's nose with a little sucker machine uh, rather than digging up in there. Drying baby with these little cool towels that people give you and it's nice, rather than the dryer. Uh, You can help baby teeth with little chew toys rather than your tennis shoes. Although people have told me that this sometimes happens and we should be willing to extend grace. (laughs) Calming baby, don't give them alcohol, basically. Uh, And then last, introduce pets to the baby in a very safe manner rather than putting them into a fish tank. Well, if we were to keep this illustration going... What I think we see here is is that Jesus really serves as the ideal parent. He serves as the one who stands tall as a parent. He's nailing parenting. He holds the baby correctly. He provides the right sort of uh, teething toys. He dries the baby in the perfect sort of way. We, on the other hand, are serving as the parent that fails. We put our child in a fish tank being like, well, I think that works. We put our child in a dryer. We pick them up by the top of their head. Jesus is standing as the ideal parent. We are failing as the terrible parent. In all of this, I think we're seeing the preeminence of Christ. Christ is the one who stands tall. Christ is the one who makes a way. And if we look at our passage and we juxtapose it with the passage that comes before, what we see is is that Christ is the one that stands tall. Christ is the one that succeeds, whereas we are the ones who fail utterly. Jesus is the one who stands and succeeds in every way that we fail. Christ is who we should fix our eyes on. Christ is the hero of this story. You see, we might be people who are tempted to think that we somehow are the hero. We see Peter and we go, I would not be like that. I would jump in and I would say, I'm with Jesus. We think that we somehow would be better or would respond differently. But scripture uniformly teaches us that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we would respond no differently. We are not the hero of this story. Peter is not the hero of this story. Rather, Jesus is the hero. Jesus succeeds in every way that we fail. One of the great ironies of this story is that Peter gets off scot-free. Peter fails terribly. He denies his Lord. He's committing a crime, and he gets off perfectly. We don't know exactly what happened at the end of this story, but we know he wasn't arrested and and tried and sent to his death. Some way, somehow, he ended up to where Jesus was able to see him in Mark 16. In some way, somehow, he became a cornerstone or a pillar of the New Testament church, of the early church. Peter gets off. Jesus, on the other hand, though innocent, is condemned as a blasphemer. 
And I think in this, we begin to see the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death on the cross. Peter did not get what he deserved, and Jesus did not get what he deserved. Peter did not get the punishment that he deserved, and Jesus did not get the adoration and the worship that he deserved. Jesus took our place. Peter's sins were incredible and devastating. Yet while Peter rebelled, Jesus secured the verdict that would take him to the cross in the next chapter that Peter's sins and our sins would be utterly dealt with, that it would be done. Once again, in all of this, Jesus is standing. Jesus is succeeding. Jesus is the one we are to fix our eyes on. He is the one who is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our devotion. As we look at chapter 14, verses 66 through 72, I think we see these two points standing tall. One, the best of men are men at best. All of our great efforts, the best of efforts, are always going to fall short. Jesus, on the other hand, is going to succeed in every way that we fail. We have a great hope in Christ. And so given all that to be the case, I want to make uh, a few application points or take-home truths to close with, given everything that we've said, first, be bold, be strong, have faith. Be bold, be strong, have faith. It's a line that comes from a Walt Harris song. Jesus died and he rose again that we might have our cowardly sin forgiven. But not only that, he died that we might be free to live in utter confidence in our Lord. We can be bold, we can be strong, and we can have faith. I think the application here of this passage is not so much that we go home and we start to like all of the Christian things that we see come up on our Facebook. It's not that we share all the different Christian articles that we see come across our newsfeed. Rather, the application of this is that we be people who live lives characterized by boldness, by strength, by faith. Peter was eventually restored. His godly grief that we see this, this passage close with turned to uh, repentance and restoration. And eventually, he became the sort of person who, empowered by the Spirit, proclaimed the gospel to those who had true authority, the religious leaders. Peter was the one who told the religious leaders that he would defy their orders because he cannot help but speak of what he's seen and heard, the gospel. Peter, who once cried in shame, eventually was led to his death for the sake of the gospel. Let us live lives that are characterized by this sort of boldness, this sort of restoration. I love the idea of, or the imagery of gospel saturation. Let us be people who are so overwhelmed, so undone, and ultimately filled up with the gospel that whenever we go throughout the various places in our life and we bump into people, the gospel flows out. When we go to our works and we're, we're having breaks and we bump into our coworkers, let us be so enamored with Christ and Him crucified that the gospel flows out. When we're stopping at the grocery store, at the Ralph's right up here on the road, when we bump into people, when we're talking to cashiers, let the gospel flow out. When we're dealing with our family members, when we're dealing with unbelieving spouses or children or whoever we're coming up against, let us be people, when we bump into them, the gospel flows out. Let us be characterized by the sort of boldness that only comes as a result of the gospel. 
Be bold, be strong, have faith. Second, hide in the word of God. Hide in the word of God. I wish we had more time to truly unpack this, but one of the most amazing aspects of our passage is that while Jesus is before the council, people start to beat him and they tell him to prophesy. And all the while, outside, unbeknownst to them, Jesus' prophecy that Peter would deny him three times is actually being fulfilled. This is what we see all throughout the book of Mark. God's word is true. When Jesus says something uh, is going to happen, it happens. When Jesus tells the storms to cease, they cease. When Jesus tells demons to come out of demon-possessed people, they come out. When Jesus says that pro- uh, prophesies something, it comes to be. And so even when Jesus says that he will come in glory, he will come in glory. God's words are being carried out with omnipotent power. Therefore, if we desire desire to be people who are bold, strong, and faithful, then we need to hide in these amazing, true, and strong words. Apart from spending time in God's word, we will not possess the sort of boldness that's in view here. It just won't happen. Pastors are always hesitant to answer questions like, how long should I read my Bible? Or how long, how often should I pray? And and for very good reasons. It could put a sort of moralistic or legalistic weight on people that's just not good and healthy. Nevertheless, John Piper recently in an article stated that given our uh, our current cultural climate, reading the Bible 10 minutes a day simply won't do. It simply won't do to read our Bible for 10 minutes a day. Now, Piper's point here isn't to beat up on those people who only read their Bible for 10 minutes a day. Some people, in reading their Bible for only 10 minutes or even less, are being incredibly faithful, and this is a worshipful sort of thing. And other people who read their Bible for much longer are actually being disobedient and unfaithful at times. That's kind of beside the point, I believe. Piper's point is a good one. We desperately need God's word in order to make it in this world. Boldness, strength, and faith will be in short supply if we aren't encountering God in his word. Hide in his word that we might be bold, that we might be strong, that we might have faith. Hide in God's word. Last, repent and believe. Repent and believe. My guess and really my hope is is that as we're considering uh, Peter's terrible sin, our own terrible sin is bubbling to the surface. Maybe our own denial of Christ is bubbling to the surface. You see, Peter's sin here is terrible. It's overwhelmingly bad. Yet, Christ stood on his behalf. We too have sinned in this sort of way. Yet, Christ has stood on our behalf. Verse 72 isn't the end of Peter's story. He didn't break down in shame only to stay in his shame forever. This godly grief eventually turned into faith and repentance. Scripture is clear that whoever would deny Christ will be denied before the Father. Whoever is ashamed of Christ will be ashamed before the Father. But Christ stood in our place that despite our denial and our great sin, we will never be denied if we are indeed in Christ. This is good news. We are made right with God, not by our perfect records, but on account of Christ and him crucified. Believe in this glorious Jesus who has rescued us, 
who has redeemed us, reconciled us to God, and then let us go and sin no more. Repent and believe. To close, I want to read a section of scripture from Hebrews 10. And I read this in particular because I I want it to be what defines us as a faith family and as a community of believers. Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But here's what I want us to hear. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I'd like for us to take a few moments. I believe that God works through the preaching of his word and by his spirit, he applies the scriptures to our hearts in unique ways. So why don't we take a few moments and sit in silence and pray and pray specifically that the spirit would help us to uniquely apply this word to our hearts. And I'll close this in prayer in just a minute. Father, We praise your holy name. What a good and awesome God you are, that you would send your son to die for us. We thank you for revealing yourself in your word, helping us to see ourselves rightly as needy people in need of a desperate need of a savior. Lord, thank you for providing that savior. Would you please fix our eyes on Christ? Help us to behold his glory, worship him, and live our lives in light of him. Lord, may your gospel uh, dictate everything about us, our identity, uh, how we treat one another, how we love one another, what we do and what we don't do. Lord, let us be gospel people. Help us, Father. We recognize uh, our need, and we recognize how desperately, desperately we need you to guide us day by day, minute by minute. Would you lead us by your Spirit, Convict us of sin, overwhelm us with your grace, and continually fix our eyes on your son, Jesus. We thank you for gathering us here today. Uh, May you go with us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.